2: I'm going bleach blonde, aren't I? <laughs> it's Monday, which means it's time for the front free weekend review with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Yay. Chris Ennage. Evening. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Marathon himself. It's that man Dave.
3: What you meant to say is Michael Marathon. Michael call me Marathon.
2: Dave, you you have completed a marathon. Congratulations! This I'm I'm impressed. Thank this you. is a massive achievement. How was it? The Paris Marathon? Did you get a decent time? Did you get the time you wanted? Was it a struggle?
0: What
3: were we talking funny. about? The time was all right. I got five hours and thirty minutes. It was okay. Is that good? Um, I struggled in the last. That's it's, it's average. It's it's pretty average. It was just hot. Twenty-four degrees. That's hot. I'm used that's to be, I'm used to running in like five degrees in, in England um, so it just it took it out of me but I, again i conditions I'm not really trained. Conditions. I trained up to 14 miles because I've got a bit of a knee injury at the moment so I pretty much ran 12 miles more than my personal best ever wow. um, and completed it but it was it was warm uh, but it was a good achievement and I snapchatted it and the snapchat really right. took me away from the pain It's it quite funny snapchat. like the last the last uh, <laughs> the last sort of like from my from kilometer 30 to 40 i was snapchatting like the top like, top 16 of the premier league who they should sign in the summer yeah. <laughs> honestly between the kilometers that would take my mind off the pain it was excellent oh dear
2: so was it more <laughs> of a it was more of a mental challenge to get over the physical hurdle mentally
3: yeah i think it was it wasn't it wasn't and there was some pretty you know in a marathon people fall over and get hurt and there were some not nice scenes in a way like running from like the, Paris, the sorry the Eiffel Tower was on 24 kilometers no 28 kilometers which is a good way and that's over over half obviously out of a 42 run but there were people that started to drop then and I kind of passed a guy that had literally probably dropped maybe three four minutes before I got there and he was getting like CPR by other runners who were obviously doctors and it was just that refreshing moment that you're like I'm doing this but I don't want to die and what, what a refreshing the... moment from that time I sort of slowed down and then I was like you know there there is more important things to life than than conquering your goals and it's in a way it's a life lesson I've accomplished something that I've always wanted to accomplish you know if I you know I want to do it quicker I want to be able to train up to the full thing but it's one of those things where your health is more important than than anything in the world and and any family is very important as well uh, you know, big shout out to the girlfriend and uh, my my sister Aww. and all the people that support on the day. You know, they you know great support. After after I finished the marathon, I te- felt terrible. I got a bit of sunstroke the day before from just chilling in Paris. You know, seeing the sights, and then obviously the day of the race, 24 degrees, running in pretty much the whole way in uh, in the heat. You know, running down the Seine, which is the river that goes through Paris, um, just completely sun on you. There wasn't shade at all, and there's water every 5k. You just gets to a point where it's a little bit too warm, but you know. Thanks to everyone that
2: supported me. Dave, congratulations. Uh, beautiful achievement. Sounds like you're taking some some beautiful things from it as well. So, uh, so well
3: done.
2: Are you going to do another one, you say?
3: I don't know. Maybe. I, I mm. just need to get this knee sorted because that's the only reason I had to take ibuprofen on mile one. Pretty much oh, dope my way around dear, the Paris marathon. Dear. Let's be honest. I'm a doper.
2: Yeah, basically. Basically, you cheated. You're Lance Armstrong in disguise. <laughs> um, pretty much, yeah. Well, well done, Dave. Do go and check out... Uh, it's your Snapchat story. If you uploaded that on YouTube or Facebook? People can go and check that out because I, I enjoyed uh, that very much.
3: It was, obviously. It was on Snapchat. That's Statman <laughs> underscore Dave. But now it it's on Facebook. Man. Yeah, uh, yeah, it disappears. So I put it on Facebook. Probably going to gonna stick more to stuff it. on Facebook from Snapchat just so it's you know you can see it if you miss it. It's the future, right? Yeah. It's Facebook luck.
2: Anyway, guys, let's get on with the podcast. Part one is going to be, as always, the Premier League review. A seismic weekend. In the English top flight, I'm sure you'd all agree. Uh, part two will also be talking to journalist Ewan McTear about La Liga. Very interesting weekend in Spain as well. For in part three, previewing all this week's massive Champions League action. But Lawrence, there's only one place to start, and that is with poor, pitiless, pathetic Arsenal, uh, beaten three 0 by Crystal Palace tonight. A convincing win for Big Sam. They did get allodized. Uh It was almost a
1: classic. No, no, they got alariced. It was almost a classic Sam Alarice performance, actually. Um, you know, the the got although it would have been better if Benteke had gone in that combination, but still Benteke uh, was there. Um, Kabay with the best goal of the game, uh, and the, the one that sort of put mm. the shockers on Arsenal. Was it on I purpose? I guess the,
2: contentious- the I uh, thought maybe the slip on Kabay might have just given it an extra lift, an extra loop. Yeah, you
1: know I mean. It didn't look like he was trying to cross it. So ultimately, he got the connection, which put it in the net. I'm not sure if he would have, I mean, obviously, he wanted it to go that way. Yeah, let's say. Beautiful. I'm not sure he intended for it to go that way. Um, And then the penalty is the most contentious thing because he he was going down. Townsend was going down before the goalkeeper touched him and he went for that connection. So I, I personally don't consider that a penalty. I know there, I know why the referee would have been uh, brought into that, but it wasn't a penalty. Sorry.
2: I think I'd agree. I Still think I think memorable. I'd agree it wasn't a penalty. But overall, I think it was a very, uh, very strong performance from Crystal Palace, Chris. Uh, strong in defence, uh, a clear desire to win. Um, I mean, they were basically everything Arsenal won.
4: A hundred percent. And the problem is, is that Theo Walcott's come out and then just said after the game that he thinks the Palace players wanted it more than they did now. Again, that's perhaps not the deepest form of analysis that, that maybe people are looking for, but it's a pretty damning indictment on that squad and, and where it's at mentally, if nothing else. I think you can can sit and deconstruct players and their professionalism in the modern game for as long as you want. I, it's fine. It doesn't change the fact that you you. It seems now, looking at it, that they're down tools. Whether that's for Wenger or not, I think is a, is a digression for, for another time, perhaps. But it highlights the fact that there's something fundamentally wrong at that football club right now.
2: It's hard to disagree with that one, isn't it, Dave? Because the stat during the round at half-time was that Arsenal have failed to come back from a losing position away from home since September 2015. And you never really believed... With the performance they gave on the pitch, that there was any way they were going to do it tonight.
3: Uh, it's an interesting one that starting obviously it is winning from a losing position. But you think about the games this season. You know the game against Manchester United where they kind of grabbed a, a point out of nothing. You know there's probably other performances like that similar to this Arsenal season. But for me, it's just interesting what Wenger started to do with this side. You know, playing Sanchez through the middle was a masterstroke. I was calling for it all of last season. I got you know called all sorts of names on. People in the comments on TFR, you're an idiot, you're this, you're that. You, could, you see in this season, what, 19 goals in the Premier League and eight assists playing through the middle as a striker. You know, the majority of those goals coming from him playing as a striker. Now, again, Wenger's moved him out to the left wing. He's playing Welbeck as a, as a central striker. Giroud's not playing. You know, the thing with Meza Ozil, he's an elite crosser in terms of his chance creation. And he... he does better when there's a target man on the pitch, whether it's Ronaldo at Real Madrid from a wide position or it's someone like Olivier Giroud. Go back to the season when he registered 19 assists in the league, the highest combination of him assisting to a a player was Ozil to Giroud. It's one of those things where Wenger's now not using Sanchez and he's not using Giroud, which evidently is not getting the best out of Mesut Ozil. And it's one of these things where now Wenger is, I don't know what's happening. Players like Zaka's getting too much of the ball, someone that you generally don't want on the ball, too square, too deep in midfield. But it, again, he's not linking with Mes Ozil. It's one of these things that it just seems like Wenger is getting it all wrong right now. It's just getting worse and worse for him. The following the defeat, the 8-2 against, against Bayern, it's just getting worse and worse and worse.
2: Looks like that contract announcement, Lawrence, will have to wait another week. Maybe it will never come at all. I mean, we've been talking recently about how the Arsenal fans are divided. They don't seem very divided tonight. I mean, I feel I've,
1: basically they've played it terribly. It's the worst PR idea of all time. But part of the problem also comes from the fact that people keep talking about, uh, well, you know, we deserve to know, which they do. But I mean, it, it just—I it, don't know. There's there's a horrible sense that the club is divided, and you wouldn't—it wouldn't be divided if it wasn't for the future of Arsene Wenger. A lot of people say, well, the future relies on Arsene Wenger. I'd argue that the club shouldn't have built their future around that. And a few years ago, it felt all right. It felt okay to say, you know, Wenger helped build this because it was like, look, we'll build him up. He'll go for a big out and then we can move on. But that never came. And now it just feels like it's gone a little bit too far. Um, You know, that leaves it as the the frustrating thing because not only that, but it seems as if the players are talking. um, The players aren't talking in a particularly committed way either way. Ozil's saying, we need, uh, if if Wenger stays, then essentially he's saying, if if Wenger stays, then I'll stay too. But he's also saying, that we need better signings. We need more new faces, which sort of said something about the current team, which apparently was ready to win the league at the end of the season, at the the beginning of the season. So uh, there's so many mixed messages coming out of Arsenal right now. it, It doesn't seem like they have much of a direction from a guy who's supposed
2: to be the leader. I just can't help. But Phil with Wenger, and I've said it before, that now is the time for him to step down. I just think it is an unedifying way for him to to end his Arsenal career. And I find it hard to believe that he will see this as an acceptable end to his Arsenal career. You know, potentially now uh, finishing outside the top four for the first time in Arsene Wenger's tenure, potentially even finishing below Spurs Chris, it's hard to see. Arsene Wenger accepting that as the end for him, at uh, this club that he clearly loves so dearly.
4: Yeah, and then I do wonder if, if that's part of the problem with Arsenal, is that for so long, and look, is a huge proponent of this, they've been defined by finishing in the top four. I'm not saying that, that fans haven't wanted to win trophies at all. It's the fact that the narrative from the manager has been, actually, as long as we get into the Champions League, that is a success. You have to think that that's really not the case at all, and and I can't think of many, if any, of the big clubs in England, at least, uh, that have looked at it through that perspective that <clears throat> to make it simply into the Champions League is a, a big improvement. Leicester are an outlier in that because they had never been in the Champions League, whereas Manchester United, Man United, uh, excuse me, Manchester United, Man City, Liverpool, etc. For them. Yes, they want to finish within the top four, but that's almost the bare minimum. Whereas with Arsenal for a number of years now, that's felt like a midpoint, if not something that is, is something to be admired. I'm not sure if it is, given the resources they have. That's, that's the problem. Even the notion of them being quite parsimonious in the transfer market is starting to fall down because they spent £35 million on Granit Xhaka. And we can debate the merits of, of his signing and whether he's a, a good player or not another time. It does prove that they aren't the, the poor shoppers that, that maybe they were five, six years ago. And even then, they've still bought marquee players. They've still put signings, spent more than, than Bayern Munich for comparison's sake.
2: Well, Jamie Carragher, let me tell you, he has been going in. I, I believe the term the kids use is ham. Is that what they say? He's going in ham? Anyway, he has been uh, really... <laughs> Really tearing into the Arsenal players, calling them cowards, you know, uh, describing how they've been ducking out of challenges, uh, saying that Graham Suness's description of them as a team of son-in-laws, whatever that means, was incredibly I accurate. Um, I mean, what do you make, Chris? Because <laughs> he, sort of, he sort of means dig at son-in-law. He sort of mean <laughs> yeah, clearly doesn't like his own son-in-law. Uh, that much is clear.
1: I think what he means there is—is is a team of people who are, who promise so much and yet deliver so little.
2: <laughs> who <laughs> like his Greg own <laughs> says but what they're a team of son-in-laws but what father would want his daughter to bring one of them home hey you know um so Chris you know we're, we're talking a lot about Arsene Wenger here and how he's he's responsible for the for the deep malaise of the club but what about the players do they not need to shoulder some of the responsibility as you said Theo walk they're saying that the palace players wanted it more
4: definitely shouldered some of the responsibility especially when he's coming out and saying that because I'd, I'd never buy this this idea that you can just blame a manager and, and put all the responsibility on them. There's a personal pride element. There's an individual standard that you set for yourself. You know if if you know you can run and all that kind of stuff. They they're all intangibles that uh, are defined by the individual. And I think the problem is there are a number of players at that football club who have fairly low standards. And I, I think the, the the other issue underlying that, and I've said this previously, I feel like sometimes when a, a new player arrives at that club, the malaise that you referenced there does kind of seep into them a little bit and their own standards drop. And it does seem to carry over and over. There's really not, if you look at that squad, I would say there's not a multitude of, of winners in there. There's a few, definitely. But I would also say there's not a, a, a great number of leaders either. And I think that's a, another issue, is that when things are going difficult, when maybe decisions aren't going their way, there's a lot of people who do just chuck the towel in there. There's a lot of people who do uh, accept that defeat much easier than they should. And look, it's I think it's, it's not one without the other in, in that respect. I think Wenger has to take the blame, because I would say he's not only recruited some of these people, but he's also set them up in a position where, they're not winning and they're clearly not playing in the best possible system or formation, whichever uh, way you look at it. And vice versa, those players clearly aren't, aren't fit to wear the shirt, as, as some
2: have alluded to. Yeah, as the fans were keen on telling him. Uh, even media lovey, as he's been described uh, by Arsenal Fan TV before. John Cross uh, calling for Vengers head tonight, saying that he shouldn't be given a contract extension. So maybe it's all over if even John Cross is uh, is on the Wenger out bandwagon. It was going to go
1: wrong when Paul Merson said, I don't see why they can't string seven games together. True, very true.
2: On the other hand, Lawrence, big win for Big Sam. Now six points clear of the relegation zone. It's looking better than some other sides down there.
1: Um, <clears throat> it's still going to get some better performances Uh in the, in the in the final few games, I mean, they've still got um tricky tricky run, um, and I mean, the thing for me is, I was also impressed with um the just <laughs> the fact that again, Arsenal seem to be just so transparent in the way that they play their tactics that another side can just go, okay, cool, well, we'll just do the normal things we do, and then we'll beat them three nil. Um, it, even with the deficiencies that Crystal Palace showed tonight, which arguably Sacco had his worst game in a Palace shirt so far, um, it, they they still didn't. They still managed to get very little past them. Um, I mean, inadvertently, Sacco, I suppose has helped Liverpool. Um, a bird in the hand is worth two Sackos in the Crystal Palace team. There's <laughs> um, going to be a variation Palace, every
2: episode now, isn't it?
1: Uh, I, I just think it's worth calling at least one podcast something like you know. <laughs> A bird in the podcast is worth two in the iTunes, doesn't it? Um, Liverpool still have to play Crystal Palace. Um, so disperse. Tottenham still have to play mm. Crystal Palace. Man City still have to play Crystal Palace. And Manchester United still have to play Crystal Palace. So there's a lot of uh, big teams there that Big Sam can try and outdo. And you sort of think it's either the perfect run for him or it's the worst run for him. Um, he's going to have to take... 12 points from those final few games in order to keep them up I think.
4: I think he's safe now, I, I really do. I think it's between Hull and, Hull and Swansea Swansea have massively dropped off a, a cliff and uh, Hull I think have sort of little little peaks and valleys with with silverware. it goes right and then other times where I think he maybe is a little bit naive to the lack of quality he's got or something along those lines so I, honestly I think Palace are safe though
1: I think. Yeah, least I mean, it's six points, isn't it? It's, it's probably
2: more it than sufficient. Yeah. It is now. I haven't got to that magic forty yet, but um, I'm sure Big Sam will.
3: Yeah, a, a great man did tell us, though. Big Sam does get things good around April time, isn't that right, Lawrence?
2: Yeah, big Big
1: Sam did tell us that. Yeah,
4: and plus Swansea are on what twenty-eight, so they've got you've got a bank on Swansea getting four wins at least. That's a big ask.
1: optimistic
2: potentially. Um, I'm an optimist in Wales. I just, I just want Wales to have representation. Let's move on uh, to Manchester United, Dave. Uh, beating Sunderland comfortably, 3-0 in the end. Uh, Ibrahimovic scoring the opener, of course, uh, which means I've been contemplating how I'll look with uh, bleach blonde hair all weekend. I think it's just three games left. Uh, three goals left, I should say, until um, I'm actually going to have to take the plunge. But regardless, comfortable win. Even Luke Shaw had a good game. Got got. Got a pat on the back,
3: Dave. Yeah, I think it's it's the the nuances of the system. Marino likes to defend with three players at the back. If they've got one attacking fullback, the other fullback tucks in. Think of Equator recently at Chelsea, and you go back to any of his teams. There's always a player that holds. You know, go back to his first team at Chelsea. Uh, William Gallas was playing on one side. Uh, Glenn Johnson was playing on the other side. Uh, you go to let's say, into Milan. Kiev was playing on the left, as left back. Mykon was the best right fullback in world football. That's what Mourinho does. And unfortunately, that's kind of going to... It's killing United a little bit in an attack. They're a little bit one-sided, either if they do go down the left or they do go down the right with their full-backs. The ideal situation they should go to is playing a 3-4-3. But that's very on He's He's played it a few times this season, but I'd like him to play it a bit more. But he's not done it in recent weeks. But in terms of what Luke Shaw did, he was very good in the game, grabbed a good assist. You know, people saying, no, oh, that was an assist. It was a cracking pass from uh, left fullback in between the opposition's right back and right centre back. McTirion, yes, had a wonderful touch. Yes, um, there could have been some better work from the Sunderland defence, but it was a very good finish, a very good ball from Luke Shaw. But a fantastic game and it allowed him to go forward playing Darmian as, as a right back. So it's that kind of like the swing um, of the back for, let's say, that Luke Shaw can advance if Antonio Valencia is not playing on the side. Unfortunately, Antonio Valencia is in the form of his life right now. So it's one of these things where Luke Shaw will get games, but will he show enough for Mourinho not to sell him the subter? It's still on. It's still on whether it's going to happen or not. I don't know.
2: As for Sunderland, Chris, uh, David Moyes up against his former club, somewhat illustrating how far his his stock has fallen. Rock bottom of the table. Uh, bad weekend, all told. If it wasn't bad enough, uh, he's now accused of verbally abusing a second female reporter. Is emerged tonight. Um, footage emerging of him... Too many of them in the game, naming ...aiming uh, a rant at Jackie Oli this time. Um, so, oh, yeah, Not our Jackie. Not a great couple of days for... Uh, not our Jackie. ...for David.
4: No, but then that's the thing. He's a real vacuum for uh, confidence in that sense. He he genuinely sucks the air out of a room. Um, He's he's a coach that I think is not very tactically astute, and then he supplements that with a really poor media handling style. So the comparison I would draw is Martin O'Neill, who I don't think is the most tactically complex manager at present, in the game. Yet, and I've said this before on the podcast, if there was one thing I always noticed about O'Neill, not only could he read a room very well, but he could also really cover up a situation with a well-timed quip or a remark or shift the focus onto something more positive. And, I mean, look, the same applies to the likes of, to to lesser degrees, Allardyce, uh, Poirier, Di Canio... They all had their own flaws, of course. But even with those three, and I point more specifically to, to Poi and Di you at least felt some of them were going to try. Whereas you look at this current team and you think they're, they're gone now. They're, they are relegated now. And there's no optimism in that city right now towards the running. Whereas usually there's this sort of belief that if we dig in, if we try then there's a chance we can step and pull off another great escape. But Moyes has, has completely eradicated that because he doesn't know how to inspire confidence. And it's really just poor showing. That's, that's the thing as well. Is I, I speak to Sunderland fans on a, a fairly regular basis, um, obviously given where I live. None of them want him next season. Not one of them want him to stay on board. And I think at this point, they're, they're less sick of the situation they're in because actually it might be a little bit of sweet relief from the usual arduous Premier League campaign and then getting rid of him because they don't think he'll give them that sort of fresh start, if you will, or that rebuild that the club so desperately needs.
2: Is it hard for you to believe, Dave, that this man was Manchester United manager just a few short seasons ago? Does it all seem like a, like a bad dream?
3: I think the thing with David Moyes is he's just become outdated with his methods. Unfortunately, the game's moved on and David Moyes hasn't moved with the game. You know, he's won the LMA Manager of the Year Award three times. He's not a bad manager, but he's not a good manager now. In the past, he was a very good manager. What he did with that Everton team was extra, it was brilliant. It's like what Poch is doing at Spurs. It was that good about getting the amount of wages that they spent in that side and outperforming the competitors around them. But what he's doing now is it's, you know, he hasn't moved his game on. It's still that style of football that worked maybe five years ago. Similar to what Chris was saying about Martin O'Neill. Martin O'Neill's Villa side played a wonderful counter attacking defensive system. But right now, that wouldn't work in the Premier League because the game's developed further. The game's developed to this counter pressing. The pressing, using the ball in different ways, using fullbacks in central midfield, and, and so forth. The game's moved on, but these managers like David Moyes haven't moved on. And you kind of saw with United as they as the game went on. You know, not, then United had the advantage of the man after the, the sending off, which I'd like to get your guys' opinions on that in a second. But firstly, United they just broke the counter so well against. David Moyes' side and David Moyes didn't have any solution to break down Manchester United's deep block and unfortunately that was a problem at Manchester United so it's one of these things but that tackle what do you think is it a sending off is it a red card I thought it was reckless when I saw it like I mm. said was, I was at the game and, and when, he, when he did it
4: purely the angle of his foot the leading foot made me think I think he's going to get sent off here
3: it's a real weird one it seems like it's the first time I saw it I honestly thought it was enough nothing tackle You know, he's sliding in, but then obviously the replay from behind him he is going in, studs up and it is like in a, you know, it's the Seamus Coleman angle, which is obviously not good for a player to do. And hence why referees may have been, uh, you know, spotting those types of things and sending players off. But it's an interesting one. Should it have been a red card? I just don't know. I really don't know. I think it's in a really grey area right now where potentially the laws may need to be adapted for the safety of the players.
1: Oh, someone's been talking to Nico and Nipun. It's not the first... Uh, I'm joking. It's not the first time, though, that we've seen Larson display this sort of behaviour. Um, and I'm um, fighting the urge to sort of go down the route of, he is this type of player. Like
3: Ross Barkley.
1: Snide, I believe is the word you're looking for. <laughs>
3: uh,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, it, under, I think it would be best to say under pressure situations... I don't think Larson copes particularly well. And I've heard that that's a few of the reasons why he's never been picked by one of the top clubs to sort of take take to the next level.
4: I, I, I mean, look, that's the thing. In, Intense, a funny one, because on the one hand, there are a lot of people that say he's not that type of player is is not mitigation for an action.
1: I don't No, I don't even mean that. I just mean he tends to lose his head and do silly things yes Um, no I I I don't necessarily mean that he meant it I don't yeah
4: I think that's a fair comment the other thing I I think as well is even before the sending off when it was 11 v 11 I didn't really see how Sunderland were going to score other than lumping it in the box or maybe a corner going wrong from a Manchester United perspective for the most part they were fairly comfortable as soon as Sunderland got the ball out of defense and into midfield the, the team's bars
1: just dropped for want of a better what's, what's the best way? What's the best? I mean, how long do you give a manager until you think he can turn it round? Because the problem is that David Moyes has been giving the exact same interview, the exact same depressing interview since the beginning of the season. Even preseason, he was like, it's yeah. going to be a struggle. <laughs> it's going to be awful. And you sort of look at that squad and think, David... I mean, look, he,
4: he he said earlier in the season, if he'd known the club's financial status, he might not have taken the job. That's just the worst thing in the world to say from, from a motivational perspective. And that that's the thing. Whether it's what he said to Vicky Sparks, Jackie Oatley, he just seems to consistently misjudge a room. And I, I've never known anything like it. And and look, there's, there's people who have said, I believe I'm, Paraphrasing Andy Tate here, he got the job in a technicality or something like that. He essentially was elevated to the position of Manchester United because Sir Alex Ferguson made a mistake. Which, again, he's not uh, infallible, Sir Alex. He made mistakes when it came to signing players, so it's fairly rational that he could do the same with with a coaching selection. And you look after that with Real Sociedad. You look at Sunderland now. There's nothing in there to make me think he's the right man for that club at all. I've out there already if Huddersfield don't go up I would go straight for David Wagner and say here's 10-15 million yeah you know start start next week you can reshape the squad because he's actually taken a group of with all due respect to most of them bar maybe one or two average players and got them third place a mere 10 points behind Brighton and Newcastle who've spent mountains more
1: than than they have I've got to admit that I do also wonder whether Wagner might have his sights set on something a little bit higher, whether some people a little bit higher might have their sights set on him. Yeah,
4: I think that's completely fair. I think he's done enough this season. Um, it's it's funny, but I can imagine he's desperate to kind of separate himself from, from Klopp a little bit because they are obviously so close off the pitch that it's natural to compare them on it. I do think he has that same flow, tactically at least, in that the flexibility isn't always really there and if the the intensity that he applies to the the game when they're leading play Huddersfield doesn't work he doesn't really know what to do i mean he set the thing is he set them up earlier in the season to be a very good counterattacking team and he showed some tactical flexibility but when it's it's not working plan a then i mean i watched them against forest at the weekend they were undone really easily and should have been beaten, probably three or four nil at the end of things. But managed to to get away with, I think, a two nil result at the end.
2: Let's move on to Everton. It's four two win over Leicester. A uh, seventh straight home win for Everton. Uh, against the left side, resting a few players ahead of their uh, their Champions League midweek tie against Atletico Madrid, of course. Uh, Romelu Lukaku, though, taking the headlines, Chris, after scoring two. Now the league's top scorer on 23. Predictably, all the talk of whether Everton uh, can keep a player this good, Chris Romelu... Sorry, Ronald Koeman, suggesting afterwards that uh, there is a contract on the table. <laughs>
3: Romelu <that>, Lukaku.
2: Uh, <laughs> I wish start that there again.
4: <laughs> no, please, can you imagine thanks. if he changed his name to try and get him to like him? <laughs> Romelu Lukaku.
2: Ronald Koeman suggesting after the game there's a contract on the table just waiting to be signed Chris
4: I would imagine there is that makes complete sense he's he's a key component of that team I, I have a sneaking suspicion though that he will, will set his sights a bit like Mr Wagner a little bit high in the league and look that's, that's not me taking swipes at Everton I just think they're at a much earlier stage in, in their project and the, the merits of, should he wait? Does he owe them something because they took the risk? I think they're all inconsequential at this point. There's a chance to make a massive sum on on him. And I think they could possibly learn a lesson from from Sunderland and what they did with Lamine Corner, which was they hung on to him. Sunderland offered him a new contract and, and turned down the 20 million. If you tried to sell him tomorrow, you would be lucky to get half that, really. And I think... Lukaku is is a lot more consistent and and will will likely grow a little bit more. I just think you could do a, a lot more with that money. That's the thing. It's it's not something they need obviously because they want it. I just think that when you're trying to keep a player who really isn't settled, really isn't happy, you've got to think what that will do to the rest of them in the in that dressing room. That's that's the other concern is whether it's a necessity for the money or not. His attitude will permeate out to the the
2: rest of the squad. Well, that's the worry, isn't it, Dave? Because uh, as well as Romelu Lukaku, uh, Koeman also said similar things about Ross Barkley, who we'll say he had a mixed weekend at best. Um, But Koeman (laughs) as well saying that, you know, maybe he should be sold. His contract's running out at the end of next season. If he doesn't sign a new contract that's on offer as well, if two players of that influence leave, it could be a problem for for the Toffees.
3: Honestly, I think Ross Barkley should leave Everton. I think he needs to go somewhere else to uh, take in some, some other football culture. Yeah, he's having a wonderful season this season, but still hot and cold. It's still very narrow-minded in the penalty area, very narrow-minded around the penalty area and what's it, what he wants to do. He needs to open himself up a little bit more, think a little bit more. He's too much of a, um, you know, going on his heart, not going with his brain at the moment as an attacking midfielder. And honestly, moving somewhere else would, would give him, you know, we're doing the world of good, getting out of his comfort zone and playing for somebody else. Maybe going abroad would be perfect, but is Ross Barkley going to adopt another language is he going to uh, adopt another style of football and so forth is another question but I just think Ross Barkley needs to leave he's 23 years old now he's not made his break at Everton he's not moved to Manchester United to Chelsea to Manchester City he needs to go he just needs to go and, and spread his wings elsewhere and if Kuman knew will be at Everton for the next few seasons he ain't getting the Barca job he's going to be hammering him week after week maybe it's time for him to go similar to the Luke Shaw situation at Manchester United if it doesn't work for Luke Shaw this season he needs to leave
2: wow Tough words from uh, Statman Dave. Uh, Leicester, though Lawrence um, Craig Shakespeare's winning run coming to an end. Uh, some interesting comments though from uh, Claudio Ranieri, who was the guest on this week's Monday Night Football, uh, suggesting that it wasn't the players that pushed him out of the club, but maybe someone behind him, directly behind him. Uh, c- who could he be referring to? Uh,
1: I mean, maybe maybe he's got some ghosts. His life, maybe, um, maybe. I'm just, I'm, I mean, genuinely. Claudio Ranieri is uh, was supposed to leave. I mean, it was just uh, when he says "pushed," he means someone who didn't help me and then sort of turned on me.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, his exact words I mean, was, "I can't believe my players killed me." No, no, no. Maybe it was someone behind me. I had a little problem the year before, and we won the title. Maybe this year, when we lose, these people. Push a little more, eh? <coughs> mm-hmm. I think you're
4: doing him a it's disservice here. I must
2: confess. Do you think?
4: Yeah, I think. Look, Ranieri does not speak fluent English. If if you you're watch taking the, it too the segment with Monday Night Football, yeah, I, th- I think it's taken too literally. I. I but he's clearly trying I'm, to. Uh, I know. I think the point. I think the point I'm trying to make is I, I'm very cautious. Of taking every word that he says literally, I think. Look, he was given the chance to say who they were, which was oh, was so, s- just slimy the way he was asked. Do you want to say who those people are? But regardless, I'm just a little bit skeptical if he meant Shakespeare in that context. I think he could have been. Who else do you think he meant? Yeah, could have been the owners. Could have been anybody.
2: It's just clear he wanted yeah. he wanted to hint at someone. Well, not even hint. He wanted to suggest someone was was behind his dismissal. Well, no, that's
4: the thing. They gave him the chance. They said, do you want to tell us who they are? And he said, no, it's it's."
2: But he was happy enough not. to suggest there was someone there. Maybe not. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawman. I don't well, want to say who exactly who it was, but it was someone.
4: That's the dignified approach of, of him, to be fair. I'm, I'm, look, I'm a big fan. Full disclosure, I'm a big fan of, of Claudio Ranieri. Yeah, and I think he, he can answer the question truthfully, which is to say, look, I think someone did push for it. But then he doesn't have to say, I think it was person X or person Y. And I think actually that that's probably the right side of the line when it comes to that sort of thing, because it is airing your opinion, but it's also not causing needless controversy or, you know, alleging guilt without any real certainty about a situation. I I do. I think it's just a very dignified approach from him.
2: Let's talk about Liverpool, Lawrence. Um, A 2-1 win for them in the end, away from home, Stoke. Hard-fought victory. Um, talk of a big gamble from Jurgen Klopp with, a, with his starting eleven, uh, A gamble that almost backfired. But the super subs saved them, Lawrence. Um, perhaps exposing the lack of depth in the squad at Arentil.
1: Surely. I mean, surely the lack of depth means that it wasn't such a gamble. Um, I mean, it would have been... To uh, start Coutinho, maybe we would have seen a different... Um, shaped the game um i think you know it was it, people thought it was brave or, or whatever you want to call it. he started trent alexander arnold and um woodburn woodburn actually looked very um very good going forward brought the ball um together quite nicely in the attack so sort of gave them a nice uh, point to play through up towards um the strikers for liverpool and i guess the the Liverpool fans all sort of say, well, you know, we didn't start our two most creative players in the side. Um, and then when they did come on, it was a great boost. One of which he didn't feel was good enough to play 90 or, or sort of um, 100%, uh, which was Firmino. And the other was Coutinho, who apparently was ill just um, hours before, but sort of deemed himself ready. So um, I think it was it worked out quite nicely. Um, But ultimately, again, it sort of shows without certain players, Liverpool do look fairly blunted. So a lot, I mean, it's going to have to be a lot of changes or Liverpool are really going to have to bring up a lot of players from uh, the youth team in the summer. A youth team which will be then very threadbare because, um, well, they may have a a ban because of tapping up certain
2: players elsewhere in the league. Let's talk Tottenham. Guys, a 4-0 win over Watford four-star performance I believe they call that fantastic win for Spurs all the talk though Dave about one man and one man only Delhi Alli opening the scoring with a superb goal curling it in to that top corner lots of comparisons being made a lot of hyperbole I think it's fair to say he's, he's better than Skulls Gerrard and <laughs> Beckham put together uh, was the headline on the BBC um twisted wow. the stats somewhat But a lot of comparisons to uh, to some of the greats from the English game. He is 21 tomorrow on Tuesday. Uh, We do have to remind ourselves on course potentially to win the PFA Young Player of the Year for a second year in a row, and he could potentially win it four years in a row. He's still going to be eligible, believe it or not, in the 2018-19 season.
3: We've got early,
0: yeah, Yeah.
3: early. I just don't think... Oh, it's a terrible song. But in terms of his player, real, real quality. But he's for me, he's not really a midfielder and shouldn't be compared with midfielders. He's more of a striker or a second striker. You know, he's, do, he's done so well at arrive, arriving late into the penalty area and putting the ball into the back of net. It's quite a unique finisher in a way of how he, he just sort of, you know, catches it at the last moment and it will go in. But that goal he scored against Watford at the weekend was excellent, coming onto his right foot from the left-hand side. In terms of goals this season, he scored more than Eden Hazard. Neymar and Antoine Griezmann in the league which is pretty incredible for a 20 year old and of course the top scorer of players under 21 in Europe's top five leagues Pochettino's getting the best out of him he's he's saving Tottenham when Harry Kane's out as well so it's one of these things where this player uh, could become one of the greats but you look at the players that you you mentioned before Gerard, Scholes and Lampard they're the best midfielders that we've uh, English midfielders we've ever seen Uh, Deli Alli could he be there potentially at the moment, he's starting off similar to what Paul Scholes did, playing as a, an attacking midfielder, almost as a striker, scoring a lot of goals from late runs from deep. But it is about his his uh, maturity and and how he how he evolves his game is going to be a big one. When he loses his pace, can he continue his game? Because a lot of attacking midfielders that play a similar position to that go back to the great Kakar as soon as his pace went, his game went, and that is a it could be a problem for Delielli. Mm,
2: I think it's interesting, uh, as you say, the comparisons there, maybe not completely accurate in that. They're players in different positions, different roles, different purposes in their team, but I think it does illustrate to an extent you know how promising this this guy is at that age to be uh, producing that amount of goals, 16 this season um, and being that decisive in these games. Uh, with his overall contribution, as you said, with Harry Kane out now for three games, he stepped up. He's sort of taken the mantle and taken on that that burden, that goal scoring burden.
4: It's worth noting he switched up from central midfield as well because I was fortunate enough to to see him when he was at, at MK Dons in person. They played a, a cup tie um, up at Sunderland, and the the biggest compliment I can give him is that I didn't realize how young he was until sort of after the game when Carl Robinson said, "I, I think you're going to be writing a lot about this boy in the years to come." and it was one of those things where you kind of stop and think, holy crap, he was like 17 at that point. Yeah. And not only did he look as good as the Premier League midfielders as he was against, but argue actually looked better for large portions of that game. So it's no surprise to, to see him do that. I think the fact that he's moved up to that position that Dave talks about as well as a sort of setting striker is quite impressive because it's, it's really not as easy a position as people want to think.
3: No, it's all about timing. I think it's, yeah. it's difficult to to have that um, and, and give that... You know, when, He's got the acceleration right now, what I mentioned before, but he's using that so well. He, he's getting into the box at the right time, and it, it's it's very impressive for a 20-year-old. I think that's the most impressive thing, that he's mature. It took Antoine Griezmann, what, till he was 25 to really get the knack of appearing in the box at the right time. Dele Alli's doing it, what, 18, 19, 20? Incredible talent.
2: I think the best thing is as well that at the age he's at, he is going to develop into an even more complete player and we've potentially only just seen the beginning of how good Deli Ali can be. I think at Spurs with especially Mauricio Pochettino there, he's got the perfect uh, the perfect environment really to realize his potential to its fullest. You know, there's a lot of talk about him potentially going to Real Madrid, maybe Manchester United. I don't see why uh, it would serve Deli Ali to go to those clubs when he's in the perfect situation now to take his talents to the next level. And credit to Pochettino, you're talking about the position there. Pochettino found the way to accommodate Deli Ali and get the best out of him, and it was interesting to hear Pochettino speak after the game of how he and Ali have a sort of father-son relationship. You know, he's clearly trying hard off the pitch to get the best out of this player. Um, he appreciates that he's a young talent that perhaps sometimes needs an arm around the shoulder. It's something he's he spoke about, despite the sort of discipline issues that Deli Ali has had uh, now and again. Um, he feels that Dele Alli needs to be encouraged. You know, he was talking about how Dele Alli has a quality where uh, to lose on the pitch, Dele Alli feels like you know, it's as bad as losing one's life. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that's how Pochino seemed to describe it. He's obviously trying to harness that and trying to transform it into a positive impact on the game and take that desire uh, and channel it in the right direction for Dele Alli. So I thought it's interesting for Pochino to speak so warmly um, about Ali after the game and I couldn't help but uh, draw comparisons in my mind to perhaps the way Jose Mourinho had, uh, had talked about Luke Shaw earlier in the week um, to see the difference between the way the two potentially approach uh, young players and, and the development of young players but either way Future's looking bright for Delhi Alley. Future's looking bright for Spurs as well. Um, Still in second, consolidating that position, uh, looking good to finish there. And potentially, as I mentioned earlier, finish above Arsenal for the first time in 22 years. Elsewhere this weekend, West Brom losing 1-0 to Southampton, leaving both teams somewhat stranded in mid-table Lawrence, somewhat stranded in Premier League purgatory, if you will. Particularly Tony Pulis. Um, going towards this, the, the, the run in the Premier League, West Brom last season failed to win any of the last nine league games. You know, once they hit that magic 40, 40 point mark, uh, that was it for them. This season, three games into those final nine games, they've now suffered two defeats and one draw. We could be seeing a repeat of that once again. Uh, like I said, he's hit the 40 point mark. Um, in fact, in the full six campaigns he's managed in the Premier League, He's hit an average of 45 points. Very consistent. And I think it's fair to say, you know, if they do indeed finish eighth this season, West Brom, that is an achievement. But next season, should that be the limit of their ambition under Tony Pulis? Can he aim higher with this team? Or do you think this may be his ceiling?
1: I think, well, I think ceiling is maybe uh, a little bit unfair. I think he's probably set targets. And every time he realises he's hit that target, he... I mean, it's, it isn't flip-flops. But at the same time, um, you think there's there are elements of this team where you think he begins to experiment. He begins to um, say, well, what, what can we try with this side? Um, and I think he begins to test out what they could do next season um, or what they could do if they want to play a little bit looser. Um, and I, I just don't think it works very often. Um, it, it's a difference in training, it's a difference in regime. I, and from the way that it looks, I think a lot of sides take advantage of that. Um, yeah, or at the same time, they're all, they also tend to play sides who actually need points come the end of the season. Um, so if you just leave yourself there, and Pulis knows he can put his feet up,
2: you've probably got a group of players who um,
1: aren't quite in the place to win a game.
2: <laughs> I just, uh, I feel like Chris, they're, you know, maybe... West Brom, maybe Stoke as well, although they're sort of drifting towards danger. Some of these teams seem to be caught in a in this mid-table purgatory where, you know, they're, they're perhaps too good to go down, but not good enough to challenge for, say, the Champions League. I mean, maybe the Europa League is the most they can hope for. Seventh position looks like it will achieve qualification for the Europa League this season. But, yeah, is that even a reward? Is that something they want to push for when we've seen the impact it has upon sides who struggle to juggle both, you know, domestic and European competition.
4: Well, that's the thing. I look at someone like Mark Hughes at, at Stoke City and I think it fits into that sort of situation that you talk about. It, it's difficult because it seems like a cycle of events where you hit mid-table so you buy new players because you think the current ones will to take you to that next level. And then it's the constant cycle of you look at Gianni Mboula who arrived for, I think, a club record fee and now is being talked about as someone that will likely be sold in the summer um i i think it's very easy to get locked into the idea of being involved in a project too in inverted commas where you look at you know in 5 years or 3 years this is what we aim to achieve realistically it it can become quite boring being in that position as well um you look at you know west brom or, or stoke city or someone like that just existing in the league is actually not as fun as it sounds and i think well, they wouldn't want relegation, obviously. Um, I think moving up to that next step becomes harder year on year because those already at the top have that established uh, history of being there, and also tend to have used their resources slightly better and build up a reserve
1: as as a consequence. Would you not also say season ticket holders deserve something? You know, I mean, if you, if you buy and and consistently want to see your team perform, you you don't buy a you know a thirty or a twenty eight game um ticket you buy something to see them try to achieve now this might be considered achievement and it might be nice to be able to sit back and relax you know you don't necessarily know what the fans want to get from their football they might want you know that and some people you don't want to be a yo-yo club so you know it is moving away from that maybe they're willing to be in that area you know it, it's not like west brom have sort of dropped down from this they're trying to build and you'd argue this is a very solid platform um the issue would be maybe that under Pulis at this point, it looks as if squads begin to stagnate. Um, and when that begins to happen, then you think, well, what can we what's the best way to move forward? Um, and it would look as if it could be getting a manager like Silver from Hull, maybe Wagner from uh, Huddersfield, who can progress the squad in a way um, and, and maybe build on the likes of what, you know, uh, maybe in the same way that Everton built on what Moyes Um, Moyes managed to do there which was a a very solid um, consistent defence and arguably if they'd they'd replaced him with someone who maybe could have combined a little better than uh, Martinez did, then they would have climbed the table and maybe been able to attract some more talents and it seems there are some managers in the Premier League that are able to do that, so arguably this purgatory is more of a stage and less of a symptom (sighs) I would be more inclined to agree
4: if either of the coaches that we're referencing had taken the club up to that next
1: level before. Well, but that's my point is I don't think that um that's, that's necessarily Pulis's job. So what is his job? So he, he's, his job is to build the solid base. His job is to get them. And then be replaced essentially. And But the problem is that um I think a lot of people look to attract new managers. It's I mean, we, it's no, it's not uncommon, um, to hear that clubs want to be bought at this point. I think it seems very clear where West Brom want to move, want to move with this team that, you know, they're one of the only clubs that are currently representing that area of the Midlands. Um, and so it's, go, you know, it's going to be a very lucrative prospect to move into that area. Birmingham don't look like they're coming up at any point. Uh, Aston Villa don't like, look like they're coming up at any point. Um, so, so you know, there's, there's somewhat of, a, um, an exciting business prospect there. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's the worst team to invest in. I just imagine that they are looking for someone to sell. The problem is we've seen a number of clubs have stagnated and it is, you know, it's arguable that the, the squads also stagnate under Pulis because I, I, you know, I don't know whether you want to call it sort of um, inertia or, or, or
2: whatever. Purgatory. It may be the word. Um, <laughs> as we're in the Premier League this weekend, uh, West Ham, big win for Stampton Village, one nil over Swansea at the London Stadium, ending a five-game losing run, leaving Swansea in the bottom three. Not looking so good for Paul Clement at the moment. That will win in five now. The Swans. Uh we also had Manchester City ending a four-game win this run in the Premier League. A 3-1 win over Hull City for them, maintaining their gap above Manchester United. Four points clear in fourth place. Chelsea, meanwhile, brushing aside Bournemouth by the same scoreline, three-one, to maintain their seven-point lead at the top of the table. And finally, Middlesbrough, not doing themselves any favour, not doing themselves any favours, managing a goalless draw at home against Burnley, leaving them six points adrift of safety. Um, right, that's the Premier League wrapped up, reviewed, analysed. Let's move on. so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To La Liga. So La Liga journalist Ewan McTeer joining us now to talk all the action in Spain this weekend. Ewan, welcome back to the Front Free.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
2: How are you? Very well. Very well. Excited to talk La Liga with you. Uh, perhaps most significantly, this weekend, you and uh, Barcelona missing out on the chance to return to the top of the Liga after they were stunned by Malaga on Saturday, losing two 0 to leave them three points behind leaders Madrid, having played a game more.
0: Yeah, there was a good clip going around with um, on Catalan Radio, and when uh, Real Madrid drew in the Madrid Derby, the, you could hear the, the commentators giggling away, and a few hours <laughs> later, they were they were quite silent, and, and it really was just a, a missed opportunity for Barcelona. Uh, I mean a draw against Atletico is, should always be considered worthwhile. And so it proved because Barcelona went down to Malaga, they lost, had a couple of suspensions, Piquet and Rakitic were both out. Um, and again, when they picked up their suspensions, it was a um, it was sort of relief because it meant they would be able to play the classical. But this game against Malaga was always going to be quite tricky there on the up uh, under their new coach, Michel, who really kind of responded well. They won in midweek and, yeah, they managed to keep a clean sheet against Barcelona at the Camp Nou and they did it again and they won 2-0. So it was a really missed opportunity for Barcelona. They, they, I mean, they played quite well in the first half. They had a few chances and their, their nemesis, Carlos Kameni, and the Malaga goal, thwarted them and then Malaga took a lead. And then when Neymar got himself sent off, that kind of just took the wind out of themselves. And uh, in truth, they never really looked like like coming back once they were down to 10. And what did you make of that red card, obviously, for, for two yellows, uh,
2: one for, for seemingly uh, trying to delay the game, tying his lace, and it could mean now, with Neymar sarcastically clapping the officials as he left the pitch, could mean that he misses El Clasico in two weeks' time.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the second yellow, I think, it was a yellow, but the first one, he was, you know, planted himself right in front of a free kick, tying his laces, which is, it was a little a little bit harsh, but when you, when you do that and you know where the free kick's going to be taken and you know, you're really just, you're asking for it and you're giving the referee a decision to make um, and then once you, you're on one yellow card you can't go charging in like that at the at the corner, so I think it was probably fair enough and yeah, to clap um, the fourth official on the way off, I really think someone at the club should have been telling him, just get yourself off and don't miss any more than one game um, because now, again, no decision's been made at the moment, but now the Spanish FA have a decision to make and yeah, he could well miss the classical and he'd been their best player over the last month and uh, he'd been in better form than Messi, so that would be a massive blow considering they really now need to win that game. Meanwhile, you mentioned it there, Anton Griezmann rescuing a point for
2: Atletico in the Madrid derby this weekend. Uh, One 0 it finished at the Bernabeu.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was just awesome. I mean, he scored a goal, but besides that, he was, he was superb. Simeone was saying after the game, he's just, he, he, he loves Griezmann so much because he, can, he knows he has so much talent he's willing to sacrifice for himself for the team and his average position in the game was actually in the center circle he was dropping back so much um, and he was he made uh, eight tackles or something like that six of them in his own half he was he was just everywhere and i mean fernando torres was he was pretty he he kind of ghosted his way through the game kevin Gamero, the the striker that signed last summer was injured so it was really all up to him to to make something happen in attack and you know he managed to get a few shots he had this superb overhead kick um, which it, um, it would have been offside if it had, if it had gone in but uh, yeah he got a one chance with five minutes to go first time hit it in and uh, yeah he was just awesome I mean, you're talking about those uh,
2: defensive qualities, sacrificing himself for the team. Some, sounds something like uh, Jose Mourinho uh, might be a fan of. I mean, what is the, <laughs> the latest on his future? Because, I mean, the, the, the speculation is just constant, really. And the, the most recent report suggesting that he could, in fact, maybe sign a new contract at Atletico Madrid. Yeah, I think,
0: uh, I think he's actually having a bit of fun with it now. He knows that everybody... He's talking about his future, and after the game, he was, you know, he was sort of saying he doesn't really anything out, but he's happy at Atletico. He said several times that he's happy at Atletico, but you never know what the future is going to hold. Um, and I think his future will be linked somewhat to to what uh, Diego Simeone does, and it looks like Simeone is going to be here next next season. So I, I'd be surprised if if Griezmann goes this summer, um, but you never really know. But he's having fun with it. A, a few weeks ago, um, he, he tweeted at, at Marca to sort of say they'd Spelled his name wrong in, um, in a tweet, and he, he tweeted to say, you know, do uh, you, uh, you, I've been in Spain long enough that you should know how to spell my name, but maybe you just spell my name right when we're talking about transfers. And I think everybody's having a little bit of fun with it now, and, and so he's almost fueling the fire with some of these post-match comments where he's he's not ruling out a move to Real Madrid, which I think in his head he probably knows would, uh, wouldn't go too well for him. So... Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens in the summer. But I'd be surprised if he does go this season. Sevilla,
2: meanwhile, uh, got back to winning ways. Uh, their first win in six matches, uh, a 4-2 victory over Deportivo La UN. Yeah,
0: I mean, they've been six matches it was, including the Leicester defeat uh, since they last won. And they they kind of stuck to the San Paolo style. They didn't... They didn't Really change anything, and they, they managed to get the, the big 4-2 win, uh over Deportivo, which they beat them away earlier in the season, 4-3, so, uh, you know, circle that one in red next year. And um, so Sevilla, back to winning ways, they've still got to fight Atletico for, for third place, and, I mean, that really does look like a big task, but they should, if they can pick up a few more wins between now and the end of the season, they should guarantee that fourth spot, Uh and then at least when it comes to trying to persuade San Paolo to stay, at least they'll have Champions League football to, to offer them. What is the latest on that? Because
2: uh, a lot of speculation in recent weeks over his future as the the title challenge for Sevilla has faltered. Talk he may leave the club. Talk that uh, Sevilla's recent form may have cost him a shot at the Barcelona job. Talk even linking him to the Argentinian coaching role uh, if Edgardo Bowser is dismissed. I mean, uh, what is the latest?
0: Again, I don't think anything will become clearer until the summer. Uh, he's, he's sort of spoken about with Monchi, the sporting director, leaving that he, he really wants some clarity in terms of what is the, the Sevilla project. Is Sevilla a team on the up? Is it really going to be one of these, uh, the new Atletico Madrid that can challenge Real Madrid or Barcelona? Or is this excellent season they've had just a flash in the pan? I think he wants some clarity in terms of what the, the project at the club is going to be, who's going to be coming in. To replace Monchi before he decides whether he wants to wants to stay there, and from Sevilla's point of view, nothing none of those decisions will be made until until the summer. So I think he'll have to wait until then before he decides if he if he's interested in sticking around or if he'll if he'll look to look to leave. He does have one extra year in his contract, which a lot of people seem to forget. Um, so as it stands, he should be coaching them until the summer of 2018. But uh, yeah, it's it's another another tricky one to predict. Hmm.
2: Uh, and finally, rounding up the top six are none other than Eibar, Ewan. Uh, now unbeaten in five and hopes of European qualification now on for Eibar.
0: I know, I mean, sixth place is the final Europa League spot, but if Barcelona do defeat Alaves in the, in the Copa del Rey final, then seven uh, position would also become a European spot. So they really do have a good chance. And the most interesting thing is that it's a Basque race for that final spot. Uh, the top five is, you know, the... Uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico, Sevilla, Villarreal, they're all a little bit too far ahead, but then you've got Ibar, Athletic and Real Sociedad all battling for those uh, final two or three Europa League spots, and then also hoping that their other Basque uh, neighbour, Alaves, don't win the cup, so it's uh, it looks like there's going to be some European football coming to the Basque country, we just don't quite know where it's going to be, but Ibar have put themselves in a great position, and and two of those wins in the last week have been momentous ones they beat Villarreal away from home and Celta Vigo away from home, which are two really statement wins that show that if they can beat those teams, uh, they really could defeat anybody. Mm, sky's the limit.
2: Um, Ewan, thank you so much for coming on Fantastic Stuff. Uh, where can the listeners find more of you?
0: Um, yeah, on Twitter at e McTier. Um Yeah, you'll find me there.
2: Thanks to Ewan. Fantastic stuff, as always. Uh, an author as well. Go and check out his book, I Buy the Brave. Fantastic stuff on a fantastic... Did I say fantastic too many times there I'll let you be the judge um, let's talk Champions League guys some very very exciting midweek fixtures not least of which Dave on Tuesday evening Juventus Barcelona we were just saying to you and there about Barcelona a disappointing defeat uh, to Malaga there at the weekend I mean based on the current form despite you know that miraculous comeback in the Champions League. Got the feeling that Juventus, Juventus, is going to win this one, Dave. No,
3: I think Barcelona will win the tie, but Juventus will win this first leg. Like, I think with this Barcelona really? team, they're a cup team this <sighs> season. I think that the league that the form has suffered, but they can still get to that top level. You know, you think of the players in there that can reach the if they play at the top level. You're not going to get near Andres Iniesta. You're not going to get Lionel, near Lionel Messi. You're not going to get near Neymar near Messi far oh, as They have top level game though, changes. Dave. Right now, I, th- I think. I think the thing is is. Uh, how do they deal without Sergio Busquets? Obviously, suspended for this second leg. How do they deal without Rafina on that right hand side? Because he's been pretty decent in this 3 5 2 or the 3 3 1 3 or the 3 4 3 or the 3 6 1, whatever you want to call it. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how uh, he, Luis Enrique sets out that midfield. Who comes in? Maybe Mascarano goes to defensive midfield. Maybe they bring someone like Mathieu into, into the back three. Uh, whether they play a back three, there's a lot of questions and uh, you know, Luis Enrique has shown in the past that he can get the best out of this side. So it'll be up to him to get them in the best position, but I still think they've got enough to win this tie, although I'm a massive fan of Juventus this season.
2: Intriguing, uh, I've got a feeling Juventus are gonna Juventus are gonna exploit uh they're gonna exploit Barcelona in this tie. I think they're gonna win this one. Especially
4: if Matthew's playing, he was awful at mm. the weekend against Malaga. Try to, try to play an offside against Sandro Ramirez. It was just, it, I don't even know why he had his hand up. It was just
2: crazy. Lawrence, you have Barcelona or Juventus in this in this leg?
1: Uh, I think maybe Hearts has uh, Juventus in this one. I think the, the maybe the thing that will hold Juventus back is con- you know, they want to control games. And actually what uh, Barcelona try and do is implement elements of chaos, which are going to get behind that back line. You know, I still think Max Allegri's control of a a game and control of a side is fantastic. But I just wonder whether after what happened in the previous leg, um, between Barcelona and PSG, Barcelona will just think, well, you know, if we score more than two, then we've got the beating of this team. Um, I, I mean, you know, they, they, they very often almost hold back out on the pitch from attacking uh, this Juventus side they just want to control and sort of not strangle a game but sort of um, you, you, basically just win it in a very almost at a canter when they need to um, I'd like to see him unleash a few players out there um, I'm going to be very interested to see what Kadira does against this midfield without Busquets in
2: there um, it'll be really fascinating Also uh, on Tuesday evening we've got Borussia Dortmund hosting Monaco, Chris, uh, Monaco, three points clear at the top of uh, of league and at the moment, uh, becoming the first side to progress in a Champions League knockout tie after conceding six goals following their uh, their, their win in the tie over Manchester City. Dortmund, though, um, coming off the back of a 4 1 defeat to Bayern Munich at the weekend, and there's injury concerns there for Thomas Um Marco Royce, a doubt. Shinji Kagawa, a doubt. Julian Weigel, perhaps most significantly, a doubt, you know.
4: It's it's not ideal for <clears throat> for Dortmund at all, and yet L'Equipe ran a really or will be running a really cool uh, front page on on Tuesday for uh, Falcao and the, the yellow wall, suggesting that it's it's going to be a really tough game for for Monaco. I do like Monaco this season in the Champions League. There's something about them; they've got that sort of air of of the year that they made the the final. It's it's a team that has its weaknesses, of course. I think. When it comes to game management, specifically how they handle the pace of a game, I think sometimes they get a little bit sucked into either trying to mirror the pace of faster teams or try and go 10% above, which, as we saw with City, meant that they were pretty gassed after about 60, 75, 60, 70 minutes of the first leg. But I think that their ability to sort of kill you in a lot of different ways, whether it's Lamar or Mbappe, even Falcao. That's their greatest strength, is, is their adaptability as a team in the final third. Even their even their defence, I think, is actually quite strong when it needs to be. It's not perfect, of course, but I, I think they'll cause Dortmund a, a lot of problems. And I think, personally, if I'm picking a game to, to watch on that Tuesday night, it's, it's, it's got to be that Monaco team. Um,
2: and who are you going for to come out of this one, uh, this first leg, at least, with the win?
4: I feel like Monaco might nick it 2-0 or 2-1. Ooh,
2: a couple of those away goals, nice. Um, Lawrence, are you backing?
1: I'll go Monaco as well. You can't really uh um,
2: I think I'm going to go for Monaco as well. Is it a clean sweep, Dave?
3: No, I think it's going to be a 4-3. Brussels win. It's going Gold to be fest. a high scorer. I love it. Mon-
1: in the first Monaco
3: are, going to- Monaco are going to beat them at home, but it's going to- there's going to be so many goals in the game. Both teams are so attacking. None of them. Neither team can defend at moments. So I think there's just going to be goals galore. Mm,
2: will there be goals galore in Madrid, though,
3: Dave? Uh, Leicester
2: heading to the Spanish capital to take on Atletico Madrid. Uh, Leicester obviously looking to keep that fairy tower alive against a side, though, who are one of the best sides in the competition in recent years, of course, reaching two out of the last three finals.
3: Well, yeah, with Anton Griezmann, they got a, a striker that is bang in form in 2017, but also in the Champions League in the last two seasons, only Messi and Ronaldo have scored more goals than him. But in terms of what, <laughs> you know, you look at the players they've got out as well, Kevin Gramero, who had started to have a really good relationship against with Griezmann against um, Leverkusen, and someone like uh, Veselko as well at right fullback had, uh, in fact, got the jersey ahead of uh, Wanfran. And we had a really good relationship with Koke out there. Koke's now been moved to the left-hand side. I feel like Atletico need to get their balance right, but I think they're going to blow it, blow Leicester City away. Leicester City have done well to come this far, but this is it. It's too far for them, to be quite honest. Le- uh, Atletico has got far too much for them to a go. step with.
2: too far, Chris? Yeah, I
4: think so.
2: Resounding, yeah, from uh, Chris Lawrence, you agree in that?
1: I think, uh, it, I mean, it seems very obvious to say, but the um, the lessons learned from previous leg uh, by uh, that severity team may prove very um, may very important for this Atletico side. Mm. Uh, I, I think they'll, yeah. Uh, the fact is also that they are a little too far behind in the
2: league. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm going to back Atletico for this one as well. Hard not to. Hard to look past them. Um, perhaps harder to pick a winner is the big one the big, big game on Wednesday evening Bayern Munich versus Real Madrid two titans of the competition Chris uh, going to be interesting to see how these teams line up I mean both of them missing key players in defence uh, Mats Hummels um, potentially out for the rest of the season uh, with an ankle injury uh, and Pepe as well being ruled out after uh, after breaking his ribs at the weekend Um how do you think this one's going to go?
4: It's, it's an interesting one I think in a lot of ways you could, could argue it comes down to who do you think will be the bigger miss Max Hummels or Pepe um I, I think buying of late from when I've seen them have been fantastic um robbery um I <laughs> rubry and robin which I wish I had intended to do but actually it was just poor pronunciation fantastic have been,
1: work really great um, brilliant um,
4: been genuinely fantastic of late. Actually I just read a really good piece from from our friend Andy Brassel today on that, um about how they've kind of wound the clock back a little bit. And and I find it funny to hear Robin say that his his famous um cutting inside move that everyone you know tags him for that if it, it still works then why does he need to change it? Because I think that's a great ethos to have. I've got a sus- sneaking suspicion that actually this will end up being a draw. Um they are very close. There's something inside me saying Madrid might sneak it, but I, I think buying a, a good side at home, and, and for that reason, I'm, I'm inclined to think it'll be a draw.
2: Score draw? Yeah. Is that a way oh, goal? Score draw. Mm. Uh, I reckon Bayern Munich are going to win this one. I think they've got it in their locker. Ooh. Lawrence, what are you saying?
1: Uh, you know what? I'm going to back... I'll back Bayern on this one as well. I'm mm-hmm. going to go 2-1 oh, Bayern. I like it. You're backing Bayern, Dave? But it's still that away oh. goal, mate.
3: Yeah, I'm going to back Bayern 100%. I'm not going to win 3-0. Wow, guess okay, Thiago mid- is big. going to be absolutely instrumental in this demolition of Real Madrid. Zinedine Zidane versus his, his teacher. He's going to bottle it.
2: Ooh. Ooh, tasty. A tasty little subplot there. Um, a tasty subplot as well in this midweek. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi vying to become the first players to score 100 goals in the competition. Uh, Ronaldo, I believe, on 98. Messi on 97. So that could be an interesting one to keep an eye on if you're a Messi slash Ronaldo fan slash watcher. Uh, Anyway, guys, fantastic stuff. Thanks for listening. Um, That is Monday's podcast done until Thursday when we'll be reviewing uh, and no doubt talking about our Terrible, terrible predictions uh, on this Champions League week. Chris, where can the listeners find you?
4: At uh, the front three.
2: Oh, good. Um, Dave in bed suffering. Yeah, resting oh, okay. up, twenty six Miles. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, Lawrence. Um, in uh, in the Twitter. Uh, on at the front three, just
1: go and find it. It's In great. The
2: it's real Twitter, good. yeah. I- I'd
1: recommend the that at the Twitter. front. Three. I am a hashtag. i yeah, some yeah.
2: great. Um, I'm reluctant to use the word banter with a straight face, but um, some very amusing tweets uh, this week, um, especially tonight um, from Chris mainly. Um, poor poor, poor, poor Arsenal. Not. Let's not feel too sorry for him. We don't have a lot of sympathy. Poor Robbie. Um, nah, Robbie's Robbie's having a great time, mate. Robbie knows what he's doing.
1: Um, Do you think Robbie would exchange um, all the views on Arsenal fan TV
2: if they could win the title?
1: No, because it's about giving fans a voice.
2: Yeah. Good point. There's, yeah. There's more, uh, there's bigger goals, Lawrence. There's, uh, there's bigger things in life than winning trophies, you know. Uh, and- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. On that note, guys, thank you so much for listening. We will see you on Thursday. Enjoy the Champions League. Uh, I know we will.